Welcome into Film Tank, the weekly podcast that covers both new and classic cinema. On this episode of Film Tank, we discuss the John Wayne D. Martin Western, which is Rio Bravo. If you would like to get in touch with Film Tank, you can always email us at filmtankshow at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Film Tank Show. And you can listen to all of our episodes on our website, filmtankshow.com, or on iTunes. And now, here are your hosts, Nick Cheney, Toussaint Egan, and myself, Alex Diekman. Hello there again, Film Tank friends, and welcome in to episode 194. I am Alex Diekman, along with my usual co-host and always friends, Nick Cheney. I would say sometimes, for sure. Ooh, it's dark. Just kidding. Thanks a lot, Andy Sandberg. And also Tucson Egan. That's a compliment in my book. Howdy. See, we're on a different wavelength here. Well done, by the way, on the howdy. That's no. I'm sorry? That's that's like showing up for class. Yeah, I showed up for class. You didn't even show up for class. I showed up for class. No, you did. I've already learned the subject, and so I therefore don't need to pay attention in class. Oh, wow. And I will extol my own uh, jokes in favor of uh, the students listening to the teacher. Wow. Because are, that is my role as like, the class Pagliacci. You are like so many douchebags that were in my classes during like Ooh. undergrad. Not you. Uh, you <laughs> not, well, not you either. Not, not you. To pick you're apart, ju- not you. You're just not, like Not them. to pick apart your rhetoric here, yeah. but um, that, that's sure. Yeah. You're shaming him. Yeah. I'm not shaming. For not being as good as something that you're also shaming. I'm not. I mean, you're obviously being facetious, so I'm not like. <laughs> what? I'm not. First of all, don't swear at me. Okay. Howdy. Alex, how you doing? Just how you like, how you how you doing there, partner? Just rope right back to just that. roping right back to that. How are you two gonna families? lasso ourselves back onto our uh, just, topic at hand? You're just trying to make us feel bad because you didn't start yeah. doing it first. Just gonna walk when us, I do walk it, walk us back to the watering hole. You all know, gonna and you'll bow down, gonna because you'll realize it's not about who gets there first. Gonna play a little ditty at the saloon. Uh, gonna shoot See, some now, this is just a stroke. See, now now Tucson is just saying cowboy yeah. things gonna now. Just, just play me some, some, some poker. Someone's poison the water. Oh, hold on. Gonna, play just, me some poker. He's going to play me some poker. Play you know, me some poker. Just going just gonna to talk to this lady of the night. Yeah, In case you didn't know, everyone, we're just going to we're gonna go to the... Go on down to the good old haberdashery and get ourselves some Dapper Dan's, uh, like, hair tonic. That uh, is not even a Western. That's yeah, you know what? People had hair word. tonic back then, too. You know what? That's they what they did. did. It was a haberdashery, okay? Specifically I don't fucking care, okay? Oh. Okay, why don't you? Sounds like you do. <sighs> I was going to say, why don't you? Why don't you? I'm trying here. He's yep. not even trying. Okay. Why don't you, why don't you just sit it's up for a while? Well... So, yes, Alex. We're going to attempt at some point on this episode to talk about the 1959 film Rio Bravo. Ah, 
which uh, will be our first attempt at a true Western. True that. <laughs> yes. We've done, you know, other genres other than superhero and uh, animation and horror every once in a blue moon. We've done a couple musicals, and we've even dabbled into foreign films once in a while. Uh, but never have we done a true Western, and this is a great time to uh, take a stab at that as we're right in the middle of summer, and it's honestly a pretty shitty slate this year. Oh, man, it's yeah. been bad. I, I, man, what the fuck is with this year, man? Um, it's funny because here's the thing. I feel like every week has a release that I'm like, oh, okay, and then oh, as it gets wow. closer, I'm like, eh see that yeah i will admit it's a shitty blockbuster whatever Mm -hmm. summer but there are like three movies in theaters right now that are not quite indies and yet definitely not blockbusters that i do want to see uh like book smart and uh personally i do want to see the bloom house uh ma with octavia spencer oh okay Uh and one other thing that's in the theater that i cannot remember but it's there you just got to look for it I just came across. And know its name if you want to order a ticket. Oh, oh it's one of those movies. Yeah. Oh. Yeah, I uh all the releases that are coming out soon, like I feel like I'll end up seeing Toy Story 4 and Jesus Christ, that's coming out this year, isn't it? And uh 2 weeks it, from Friday. Oh my god. Lion King, which yeah. they finally revealed some more footage of talking animals and it looks awful. Yeah. But it's on an animated film. Let's not say it's an animated film. It's live yeah. action, right? True. It's live action right in front of that blue screen. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I mean, this film, all of the characters in it are animated, but every every film basically now is filmed in front of a green or blue screen. So that's yes. a little bit... But he's going off of I'm the saying... fact that John Favreau... Yeah would not let somebody call this animation because he really wants to distinguish the fact that this is live. So to call attention... It's um, it's all a matter of marketing. It's all a matter... It it has nothing to do with the actual material production. If you're going to play up that angle, then you're just going to make it look worse because I'm sorry, but there's nothing uh, live action about fucking Pumbaa's jaw, which he looks... When he was talking in whatever scene he was in that uh, Beyonce clip. If I wanted uh, to, if I wanted to watch the live action Lion King, a live action Lion King, I would watch Roar, because he's the king of the lions. You can tell. Who Trogar? Trogar. No man, Trogar oh. was put in his place. Yeah, Trogar. Trogar for a while was was ruling the kingdom. For a little while, and yeah. uh, you know, thankfully, Jan Debont was there. <laughs> I played that film. I played that film at my workplace once. And you no longer work. Oh no 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 no! no. Well, actually, I left that job of my own volition. That's what you tell people. uh, Yeah, that's what I tell people because that's the truth. But like my my coworkers actually really enjoyed it. They were like enraptured by it. Enraptured. Yeah, they were. They were like glued to the screen. I was like, guys, we got to do work today. He's like, no, I want to watch this. Like, no, you can't though. So why did you put it on? Because they wanted to see it. Because I talked about it and Uh, just like, and they just put it on. I'm just like, okay. All right. Usually how it works at a workplace, you show someone a 40-second clip, <laughs> yeah. not the entire hour. And well, it wasn't the based, entire based hour. Based on this like... conversation, I'm envisioning a scene in which whoever your boss was. Like, mm-hmm. Tucson, can you come in here for a moment? Nah. Yeah, sure. Just, will you just fucking shut up? Okay. 
And Jesus. and then he comes in, and then he's like, "Hey, can we talk about uh, your screening of Roar?" I quit. <laughs> nope, that's not how that happened. I know, but that is literally not what happened. Uh huh. Yeah. That's how jokes work. Okay. So, so on uh, this particular episode, we are not going to talk about a new film. And actually, we're not going to talk about new films probably for at least a couple episodes. Forever, they're canceled. Yeah, that is potentially a way we could go with this, but You're probably canceled. not. But I appreciate... And that's T. The enthusiasm, Nicholas. On this particular episode, though, we are talking about a Western, as I mentioned, and the Western we are talking about is Rio Bravo, which was released in 1959 and stars John Wayne and Dean Martin. Uh, definitely a interesting double billing there as John Wayne is absolutely synonymous with Westerns, and Dean Martin is, in fact, not. (laughs) So, other than the two of those very well-known gentlemen of that era, we have uh, the young Ricky Nelson here, who on the uh, poster, there's uh, a, a little blurb about him, and it says that, in addition to Dean Martin, he also sings. So, that was... Getting people in the theater to see this young person that mm-hmm. would never be heard from again. Uh, seeing, I in mean, the I don't, film world. I was going to say. <laughs> I, um, and then also an early performance from Angie Dickinson mm-hmm. here. Playing the character of Feathers. Mm-hmm. And then also, too, you have a bunch of really random uh, blokes here, including Walter Brennan, who, Nick, you were saying was in other Howard Films. He was in every Western ever made <laughs> because he talks like an old-time prospector. Oh, well, there you go. <laughs> I Pretty much. Now, does he actually talk like that, or is it like a Gilbert Godfrey yeah, type Yeah, that's thing? what I was asking. I think it's probably a Gilbert Godfrey thing in the sense that it wasn't just Westerns that he talked like that. Like, that was his persona. Character. But the idea that you would you would have to work to find, I believe, you know, a quote or a clip of him not talking like that because he was also in you know comedies and whatnot but there is is probably a good chance that something like i don't know the asian magician at the beginning of the prestige where he's out there living his craft because he has to do that or else people will find him out in reality he gets home he's like oh fucking thank god i've stopped Talking like a fucking idiot. I don't know. I will say, as someone who is in no way a uh, Walter Brennan expert, mm-hmm. so don't hold me to it. Who is? Uh, I think there's the scene toward the very end of this movie where he does that funny John Wayne impression. And I think the fact that it's funny because he breaks his character voice to show that he can do something else. But also, he can't quite do a John Wayne impression, which is one of the easiest impressions for anybody to do because mm. it's got such a specific draw to it, tells me that he probably is closer to that speaking voice than, let's say, Gilbert Gottfried is to uh, his asphyxiation he called a voice. <laughs> mm. Yeah, that's a good way of describing Gilbert Gottfried's voice. Yeah. Ah, whack. Mm-hmm. Oh. Not anymore. Not mm. anymore. Not for a while now. Oh. Tsunami man. Don't count your ducks before you make a racist joke. Yeah, that's an adage for our time. Don't count your milkshake ducks before they turn out to be racist. So, 
Rio Bravo centers around a small-town sheriff, believe it or not, in the American West, who enlists the help of a cripple, a drunk, and a young gunfighter in his efforts to hold in jail the brother, brother, the brother of the local bad guy. That's literally what this says. Man, they gotta just, they gotta try harder. Dropping them bees. I don't think they're going to. Butter. Yeah, that was bad. <laughs> Sound like the uh, uh, the one character from um, Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs too. There's just a literally just a thing of butter. Butter. I don't know. Sorry, <laughs> I've not seen the sequel. I've seen the first one. I've never seen either. I thought they were both entertaining. I like the first one. Yeah. Oh. Maybe one day I will I will treat myself <laughs> to that spectacle that you are butter. describing. Butter. Yeah. Butter. So, uh, I think Nick should start us off because he is the one who was pushing the idea of us eventually doing an episode on a Western. Mm -hmm. And uh, as per usual, um, other than gangster and anime films, he is the local expert (laughs) on every other genre. So, take it away. Oh, well, thank you. Yeah, um, we were trying to figure out what we were going to do for this episode, and I was like trying to rack my brain, and I had two ideas, and I'll save the other idea for a future episode. But I was between doing a, and what you were saying, we haven't done a Western, just to be even more specific, we haven't done a classical Western from the period in which they had their heyday. Um, And the other idea I was thinking about was a silent film, and we will probably do at least one. Okay. Of those in our lifetimes. Okay. Uh, but I chose a Western, and Rio Bravo popped into my head instantly because I like it. <laughs> so that was the first reason. That's usually a good starting spot. Yeah. And I also thought of three things when I thought of which one I would choose for the two fine folks uh, sitting next to me um, in trying to evaluate. What's both a closed-minded genre in the sense that there are, a lo- there are a lot of tropes, and obviously that's comes with any genre, but in this, it, Westerns in the Hollywood uh, Golden Age era truly were cut from the same cloth. They used the same sets. They, you know, had the same actors, clearly. I mean, John mm-hmm. Wayne was in almost all of them. Um, and obviously there are outliers. Like, there are... Radical Westerns. I mean, uh, I almost chose Johnny Guitar, which was a Western made by Nicholas Ray, starring, um, what's her name? Joan, uh, the most famous Joan. When I, when I hear, no, (laughs) when I hear the, uh, the IMDb description of this film, um, Aside from the some bad guy, the local bad guy part, like it sounds like an archetypal, like, Western film, and that's what it is. Like yeah. it just happens to be. It's it's an archetypal Western film that happens just to be a very good representative, like example of a of a good Western film. Yeah, um, Melissa Joan Hart, Joan jo- Crawford, Joan Crawford. Anyway, that's who I was thinking of. <laughs> um, She's the third who comes up after Joan Cusack and Melissa Joan Hart. So, uh, well, Melissa go. Joan Hart shouldn't even count. That's- <laughs> 
that's Melissa. Um, <laughs> but no, uh, but something like that, for example, Johnny Guitar, um, is an f- amazing movie. Might even be better than this one. I would say they're about close. Uh, and yet that's just a more radical example of, of Western trying to buck its conventions instead of uh, exploring them, so to speak. And um, But so we, we're we're brought to something like Rio Bravo, which I think, for the most part, is in no way anything trying to um, uphold or not uphold, upend the conventions of the Western genre. I mean, all the staples are here as far as uh, the conflict to some of the archetypes and whatnot and some of the performances. But Howard Hawks, who also made a great Western called Red River starring uh, John Wayne, was never quite interested in the true myth of the Westerns. He, I believe he loved the language and the vistas and the kind of um, the humanistic stories that came with them uh, and often, but he didn't quite buy into the idea of a towering giant sheriff who... Um, and I know that's going to sound funny when we read the plot description, but uh, just bear with me here, of a very uh, hot-blooded, you know, John Wayne running around just using his fist to solve conflict and because he knows right from wrong, and that's all there is to it. Um, he was much more interested in just making a good movie. He was just so good at doing it in a studio uh environment. And so he returns to the Western with Rio Bravo, uh, and he returns to John Wayne. And here, uh, Rio Bravo is just, in my opinion, is a fantastic film. It's, um, it, while it shares all of the same kind of tropes and such, it's got a very languid pace for a Western. And yet I never personally think that there's a wasted scene. I, I think all the character interactions here uh, work over time to support each other, and even when somebody has an extremely minute arc, it's still referenced. For example, Walter Brennan's character, you know, he's technically a punchline character who, um, you know, nobody tells me nothing, you know, whatnot, and yet even his backstory is technically tossed off in one line when we hear about his grudge with the uh, the gang and what happened to him, and we can kind of surmise that that may have also been uh, where a crippling incident may have taken place uh, when they took the land from him. And um, there's just so many things about this movie that I feel like um, kind of circumvents the usual codes of masculinity that were happening uh, in the heyday of the Western. Because this is 1959, so the Westerns were on their way out as a classical Hollywood feature. They were in no way dying, but they were no longer seen. We were about to hit the 60s, and that's when the independent movement was really going to take off. Uh, It started in the 50s, but it had a name and and, an actual face in the 60s, uh, and then it exploded in the 70s. Um, So this is the the last vestige of a genre about to die, and I I think that's so poetic that for a film like that, and for a film to be as good as it is, in in my eyes at least, that it's about a group of outcasts who are just trying for dear life to protect it at all costs no matter the faults of what they're protecting you know Mm -hmm. it's it's justice must be served and um kind of just bonding over that kind of shared uh camaraderie over what they believe in 
Um, to get just to the general elements, I think all the performances in this, in this movie are pretty good to great. Uh, I think Ricky Nelson's the weak link, but because he's really the one who was not an actor and <laughs> clearly... But I also think he doesn't embarrass himself in any way. Um, and he does kind of play... Because of his character, it kind of fits that he's this cocky kid who doesn't quite fit in, but is doing what he can and yeah. whatnot. He's competent. Yeah. And I think John Wayne is pretty dialed back for John Wayne, which yeah. is that, you know, he's got his draw. But, I mean, this is a movie where he kisses Walter Brennan. So, like, even... On the head. On the head, yes. <laughs> but to be honest, he would not have done that 20 years prior. No, he would and he not. probably wouldn't have done it ever since that moment either. But I feel like Howard Hawks brought out the best in his cast and crew that he was able to show a vision of something that may not have always <laughs> lined up with uh, what the somebody like a John Wayne would think yeah. of themselves and whatnot. It was so uh, in the moment. It was so <laughs> like quick and over and done yeah. that you couldn't help but see it as just like a, a punctuation of comic relief rather than anything indicative about the relationship or the nature of these characters in and of themselves. And I think that is probably the only reason why it would have not one uh, gotten past the cutting room floor, but might've even been palatable to audiences of that ilk during that time. Absolutely. Yeah. And um... it was just once. So I was just like, Oh, it was just a joke. Yeah, well, that's the other thing that's actually kind of weird about that is that, like, on the one hand, you can look at that and say, oh, wow, that is a man kissing another man on the head, yeah. and it is for comedic purposes, mm -hmm. but at the same time, it's in a Western with John Wayne, so damn. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, I feel like you could also, if you wanted to be a little bit pessimistic, look at that and say... Well, yeah, but at the same time, it's like being used to say, I mean, that's fine, but... To be fair... I think it's both. I, I, I mean, I think it's both, but I also think it's larger than that in the sense that for being such a minute moment, um, I don't think there's anything that's actually not earnest about that moment. Yeah. Like, I think he, Pretty much because he takes care of uh, Stumpy right. and, and Dude and whatnot. Um, it's just... Ironically, John Wayne is kissing someone who's not part of his generation. So, if anything, he's a slightly liberal figure in that microcosm of a moment, which is so weird to think. I was going to say, ironic. not really been yes. called that. No, often. and no. and yeah. So, and we, yeah. Um, <laughs> Nobody would ever accuse of um, John Wayne of being a liberal figure no. in any regard. No. Um, she rides into town on a donkey. <laughs> yeah. Mm. yeah. Um, he did make some very interesting he sound effects. In sure this did. Film. Some of the AD, <laughs> some of the ADR in this movie is pretty special. <laughs> um, and obviously, for me, Dean Martin is the best part of this movie. The whole character arc of Duke is just fantastic, and I think he nails it. And I think that while. I can understand if someone dislikes this film because they want to maybe consider the pace to be laborious. I personally think that a lot of Dukes or Dukes dudes uh, arc and other characters moments are allowed to breathe because of that pace. And I feel like we get to watch a character like dude go through a lot. Um, and for the movie starting off in the first five minutes where it kind of like jumps over uh, a lot, not necessarily background, but it kind of just hopes you'll catch up, you know, as you watch it. Um, it's fitting that we then just settle in to watch this true, like 
week or so that uh, from hell that the sheriff has to deal with, all because of one criminal. Uh, and while he's also still trying to keep... Criminal of connections. Yeah. Uh, still trying to keep his friends afloat, and um, we see the true ups and downs that come with that. And mm-hmm. yeah, I, I I'll pass it off, but I'll just really quickly sum it up by saying I I just think the movie's fantastic. I think it's funny at places. I think it's genuinely touching in others. And while I would definitely argue and concede that the romance is the weakest part, it is also for me at least responsible for some of the best uh, quieter moments. Uh, some of their flirting. Uh, is actually pretty low key great uh, in in my opinion at least, and there are some choice scenes and lines where uh, it is slightly refreshing to see John Wayne in a romance movie where like unlike the Quiet Man, uh, which is not a bad movie, but that whole movie literally climaxes with this really ridiculous ten minute brawl sequence in which he beats the shit out of a guy so that he can marry the or stay married, whatever, but for a woman. uh, And, like, the whole fight just takes place across an entire Irish town, and it's just the epitome of just fucking masculine bullshit here, where in a movie like this, uh, you know, while it's not certainly progressive, it's definitely not uh, regressive in the sense that he... Uh, the Andrew Dickinson character of Feathers is able to take him off of his uh, little high horse uh, hmm. a lot of times, I think, <laughs> in this movie. So I'm a big fan of it. I can't wait to hear what you guys thought, good or bad. So I thought this film was pretty good. Yeah. I uh, would not say I love it, uh, especially after a first viewing. But at the same time, um, I felt like this film accomplished what its goals were. Uh, I, I too, thought that Dean Martin was probably the best part of this film. But I don't necessarily think it's because of some of his more showy parts of this film. But I do think a lot of his early scenes are actually his best parts of this. Um, Which I feel like he probably has a lot of good experience playing a drunk. So he pretty much nailed... I mean... Yeah. Yeah. I think he pretty much nailed that depressed drunk thing because I think he had a lot of life experience. Method acting. (laughs) Yeah. I I agree with you in the sense that the energy does shift in a way that's beyond the character uh, when he gets his shave and cleans up. Uh, And there's nothing wrong with that part of the film or his performance. Dean comes out a little more. He does, and obviously the really solid uh, scene with the song that he's singing and the yeah. Ricky Ricky Nelson Ricky Nelson's playing the guitar and also having a vocal moment there. But early on in the film, I feel like Dean Martin is actually just has this sort of like soul snatched look on his face through the first probably thirty five to forty minutes of this film. Um, and I know he's playing a guy who's going through alcohol withdrawal, and 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 they're really doing sullen heartedness, pretty basic things with that. Like, oh, I'm shaking. Oh boy, it's bright out. I've got a bad hangover. Like, I mean, you know, things that were just like kind of, you know, basic depictions of alcoholism I was gonna say, and the effects that. But at the same through. time, um, in the other parts around that, when we're not just going for the low hanging fruit of my hands are shaking. I mean, he's just giving this sort of sad, lost child in a store performance, which I think is actually pretty fantastic. The scene where he goes into the saloon through the front door, mm-hmm. uh, 
to investigate and interrogate all of the men after uh, Wheeler is shot and killed uh, is pretty great because I feel like that's a shiny moment where he, as Dean, is kind of, quote-unquote, giving a good performance, and yet it also bleeds into uh, uh, the dude also trying to stand tall and make both Chance proud, but also uh, instill a sense of... Uh, authority that he wants to go lost. I was going to say reclaiming authority yeah. almost. Uh, he That scene is pretty fantastic. Um, and also, too, uh, a lot of the other earlier <laughs> scenes were probably some of my favorite in the film. And not just the ones with him, but uh, I thought this film probably peaked in the early parts of it, as I think a lot of the early moments in this film were the best in terms of scene-to-scene-wise. Uh, I did really appreciate uh, the final climactic scene in this film, mostly because I did love the tie-in of the dynamite on the carts from earlier in the film. It was uh, really hilarious. Which I had uh, totally, honestly, and this is a credit to the filmmaker, completely forgotten about. Um, And I will say, for a Western from the 1950s, having multiple large explosions on a house... Oh, it's pretty wonderful. What do you call a situation like that? It's like um like a brick joke. It's not a brick joke, but you know what I mean, like where no, something is introduced in the first act and it's a Chekhov's gun. Chekhov's gun. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's what I mean. Yeah. And um although they they hide it very well, so it's not it, Chekhov's gun. I feel like people are using that a lot now. They don't call attention to it at first, but that's like, what Chekhov's gun is. Yeah. Chekhov's gun is literally look at, look that at gun. this gun that I'm not firing right now. I'm gonna put it on the table, and then 40 minutes later, someone picks it up and whatnot. Uh, the dynamite thing is kind of good because it's kind, it's kind of it's it it like that is not really caught, is brought attention to like it is sort of just in the background and the focus of both that scene and really the uh the paramount importance of that sequence and leading afterwards is the character of Pat Wheeler and so his death and whatnot so we just forget about any trace of existence of what Wheeler brought into the camp uh, outside of Colorado and Mm -hmm. whatnot and um, I also think that the dynamite is probably also great because it delivers a very good payoff to Walter Brennan's running gag of nobody tells me nothing because I do kind of giggle every time he says it but that made it worth the whole movie when he's over by it. And well, also, too, I mean, the idea of him being told over and over to stay in the jail and then they would have been screwed over if yep. they'd gotten across the creek and he was there to shoot the two bad guys that got out of the barn they were shooting at. So, uh, overall, I thought that that final scene was, was quite good. I think probably my biggest complaint of this entire film is that uh, the story involving our main characters including angie dickinson's characters i think all are pretty good and pretty um well-rounded but i think the story of the villain and the guy who is causing all of these different people to come and go feels pretty risible i was gonna say is pretty much the worst part of the movie for me because it all feels like like when it gets involved, like I have no interest in this, and you've done nothing to get me more interested in this. So it feels like the real proportion of this film is like these characters sort of grappling with their moment to moment, which problems is, I think, and, the story, and, and and really just like like Burdett being imprisoned and like these 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 criminals like descending on this town in waves in order to like take out 
like the lawman and his his deputies is sort of the context which then sort of frames why this person has to be on guard for as as long as the, the, the film's duration and why these, these sort of characters... The literal binding force. Or the binding force of why they have to be centered in this one sort of context. And it's really just um, looking at Dude, looking at uh, John T. Chance, looking at Colorado, and looking at uh, Stumpy, Feathers. Like, those characters are the ones that, like, you have to, 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 to see... How are they fitting into their context with one another? How is Feathers interacting with, with Chance? How does Chance interact with Dude? How does Colorado interact with, with, with Chance? Like that, the, I, I'm more interested in the human drama that's at play here. And really, honestly, like Dude is my favorite character in this entire film. Like uh, John Wayne, like I've already, I've already said my piece on John Wayne as the person. Um, I understand and totally agree that he's a quintessential figure when it comes to the canon of like Western cinema. Um, but he is, as I think Nick already said, he is the least interesting character to me in this case. Like he just feels like he is there because he is the archetype. He is the sheriff. Who else are you going to have play the fucking sheriff other than John Wayne, who is John Wayne right there that he plays it's, it to a T. It's kind of like when Sean Connery was cast in a league of extraordinary gentlemen. Like yeah. Yeah. we need someone. To Funny story play. about that. Apparently <laughs> that was so no, really. bad that it, it forced him to, force to fucking <laughs> no. retire. Apparently he was offered a role in Harry Potter and he turned it down because he didn't understand it. And to the end of the book, you know, whatever. <laughs> but he understood then League of he, Extraordinary Gentlemen. No, but that's the whole point. Then he was offered a role in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, I believe. And he okay. also turned that down because he didn't understand it. Good move. And, well, it was, but it was also at least a blockbuster of its time. I'm not saying it had the same okay. game for whatever. Right. But apparently he only said yes to that because he did he, not want to make another faux pas. And He then, actually didn't want to make another movie after that. And they and, agreed to, like, kill off his character at the end. Yeah. But I'm, it just it cracks me up that he did not understand fucking Harry Potter, but he understood League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. No, based, he didn't. Based on one of the most Byzantine, the point is he fucked didn't up shared universe like okay. world literature, like pulp action context is dreamed up by that fucking wizard Alan Moore. Yeah, so he didn't understand. That. Okay, and the point is that he just was going to say yes to anything that looked. Like it was so crazy fantastical that he didn't understand it. He just didn't realize that in this case, uh, it's he waited un- a little bit too long. It's understandable, uh, well. but not understandable. Uh, hey, so uh, continue. Sorry, I right. was just gonna yeah. finish by saying that I do think that the antagonist is uh, a part that definitely could have been improved, even if it isn't the main point of the film. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean that the storyline there could not have brought more to the table. Uh, but overall, I thought this was a quite good film, uh, even though it is definitely a little bit on uh, the slow side uh, at times. But at the same time, too, I think all of the true Western elements other than like cowboys and Indians and all that shit um, and, you know, good old fashioned racism and sexism uh, are, are really not yeah. super prevalent here. Uh, I mean, you don't really not have, in a way where you would teach. You could not teach this movie as the right. quote, unquote, example. I don't. I don't. Feel everything like, that was wrong. With I don't that think they <laughs> I mean, you have the gonna, uh, the character of uh, I'm gonna Carlos. Tr- I'm going to try to try to couch this. I don't think that it's. I don't think it's deliberate 
in its racism. I think it's more like it, it's more of a, a the soft implication that sort of like surrounds it. But like I don't think that it's it's. I'm not look. I don't think it's hateful. I don't think it's deliberate. I think it's just more of like one of those textures that comes along with the with this sort of era of of Western cinema, where it's like these are the archetypes that they're working with. Going off, these of what, are the accents that they're working with. Going off of what Nick was saying, and I have not seen a lot of westerns, but there are lots of other examples oh, out there, there are that are much examples. louder than this oh, one. Well, and even much... think really quickly if you take the Spanish speaking characters, they're able to speak Spanish for more than just words, like whole sentences, and there are no subtitles to what they're saying. So the idea that this was in any way pandering to a Western crowd in the same way that Westerns were 20 years prior uh, is just false. I mean, uh, which is not to say that it cannot be racist or cannot have, but it is is definitely of its time, which is to say that it's at the very end of the era when there was at least some Mm self-awareness in some of the past mistakes, which doesn't mean that it couldn't repeat them, but... So overall, I thought this was uh, definitely a uh, a solid film and uh, one that I wouldn't hesitate to revisit again. Yeah, I mean, I already shared some of my um, opening sentiments about this this film, but I really did enjoy it. I was not, I mean, when the idea of doing a John Wayne Western was sort of floated, I was kind of trepidatious about it, given like my sort of stance about the man himself, but I think that it was a really good and interesting film i will agree that the villain was entirely forgettable i honest to god i forgot about him most of the time until somebody tried to come and, and shoot the sheriff like oh yeah there's that one son of a bitch who's keep on trying to like shoot the sheriff um even even the villain who's in prison i mean the opening scene is so like i, I almost have no idea what's happening there because there's no context to it really like he just shoots somebody just to get the plot moving mm-hmm Pretty much, yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, he just shoots somebody because he thinks that he can't be touched, and then he just like moves I mean, on. They do moves on least, to the next saloon. They because... do at least slightly hearken to that mm-hmm. when his brother does finally arrive in the town, right? And the brother's really not there to rescue him because he needs him, but because this is probably the millionth time he's done something like this. Okay, my where, brother shot a guy in the stomach. And he is his brother, so therefore he cares for whatever reason. Sure. Right. Um, so while I, I, I feel like the editing is what hurts that f- opening scene more than just the actual character motivation, mm-hmm. because it just kind of comes and goes in a wave, and then all of a sudden... I was just trying to... And then all of a sudden, dude's wearing a deputy badge. At least on the first time viewing, it, it really is... There's just a yeah. whole lot happening there. Yeah. That makes absolutely no sense. I mean, you've got everything with dude, uh, with him being a falling over drunk, wanting to reach into a spittoon to get a quarter so he can buy a drink. Mm. And then you have John Wayne over there who just shows up and uh, you have no idea what his... with a shotgun. Yeah, I mean, you have no idea what his motivations are. Then you've got this one guy who's just up to no good. You're just trying to understand and establish... Like, what is the relationship between all three of these characters? And then eventually by the next scene you do. And it was just like, it was, it was a very interesting and you know, you cold know, opening for the fact that I was sort of invested in that. Because just like, why, why are these events happening in this way? As a modern film viewer, too, that whole, the way that whole, hap- the whole scene plays out, like it feels like almost like that's a setup to get people's attention away as mm-hmm. the magician's, the magician's assistant does this in one hand and everyone's focused here while 
the, the bank is being robbed on the other side of town. I, yeah. don't, I don't know. Well, no, I, I think you're right in the sense that when you watch a movie bef- made before 1960 in the Hollywood system, uh, you are expecting the opening scene usually to have either minimalist action but or uh, exposition. Like, it's one or the other. Whereas here... It is a drunk cold cocking his actual friend with a shotgun while another big bad criminal uh, kills a man. And this all happens within the span of like two minutes or so. And then we parse through what this kind of original sin does to these uh, inhabitants of now, this Now, I'm just going to sort of uh, concede my... My sort of ignorance about this, uh, or, or rather, my 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 lack of familiarity with this genre as a whole is like I'm not really certain if I've encountered a a western that starts in media res like that, where it's just like it, it's in the midst of somebody being arrested, where I just I'm, not I'm still quite trying to this blunt. I don't. Yeah, think. It's, uh, it's I'm not gonna obviously even myself. Right, not a western expert. Right, I say it's never been done. But I do think Howard Hawks is a shrewd filmmaker, and um, it definitely is is bizarre. And you also think about the context in which it came out. It knew how to how to grab my attention by withholding information, and that's something that I always applaud and recognize <laughs> in a film if done well. And I think that this film does do that well. Yeah. Um, I think that, like I've said before, my favorite scenes all involve uh, dude. And the one scene that you, you, you referenced before when I think it was Wheeler who got shot. Yes. And then there is the, the assailant who runs into the saloon and yeah. then dude walks into the into the front and then basically shakes down all the guys there to drop all their guns, searching them. And then you have Chance, like, talk back to the one guy. I was like, oh, I didn't see anybody come in here. I was like, we'll remember that. And I was like, I immediately, I immediately thought of, I thought of a telltale thing, like chance will remember that shit. Yeah. And he did. Yeah. And I was like, oh man. And then it, it, it cuts up to the, uh, to the actual balcony, the darkened balcony. You can see the silhouette of the guy like hiding there. Um, that was a really good shot and it was awesome. Just like, it's a good shot. And I also, I, I will agree with you, Alex, in the sense that I can understand one wanting more from the villains, but I also think, Howard Hawks is a is he has a visual language, and I feel like when you see somebody like the guy who shoots Wheeler, uh, it's interesting that we see we meet Wheeler, we get to know who he is, what his relationship is to Chance, and yet even when he is shooting Wheeler, runs into a saloon, and then is has the drop at the moment on Chance, he's still in shadows. Like I, I do think there's a purposefulness in mm-hmm. the sense that the villains are not given. Uh, anything that they don't deserve, almost like if, right. you, if you go with the, like there's... the theme of justice, and like they're not worth the time, so to speak. But I also agree that it's kind of uh, it can be slightly mundane at times if it's not presented because not every shot is like that shot in the saloon and whatnot. So no. I, I'd also yeah, I get both sides basically. The 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 villains in this film are, I think it's interesting for the fact that they are unextraordinary. They're not charismatic. They're just pretty petty simple-minded like moment to moment and incidental which most real life villains are i would say it's just like they just happen to just live in their moment and they just like flit away like yeah, yeah. well and not only that too but also you know the the brother um not in prison but the other one yeah. uh is for most of the movie just trying to pay guys to do it and it's like 
so literally these guys are kind of like NPCs in a shooter. Like they're, they are not in any way, uh, you know, worth. They're not principal characters, really. Yeah. They're just sort of like, I'm going to send a bad guy after you. And so the type of man that would do something like that, in my opinion, would also be kind of small in stature, you know? Yeah. Because uh, if he could get shit done, he probably wouldn't have to throw around money that <laughs> flagrantly uh, and waste it that much because it's not he doesn't do it one time he does it like at least two or three more waves of like oh hopefully this works mighty morphin power rangers like rita repulsa sending off the putty patrol every fucking episode (laughs) all i know too is that the undertaker is fucking profiting from that shit because when he's just like no don't pay me i've got this shit and you're like wait a minute that was stolen money. What the fuck? Death is I, my business, and business is booming. I I guess so. I guess he's just going to take the fucking coin from the Continental and <laughs> go his merry way. Yep. Yeah, fifty dollars. The Continental Saloon. No, I'd yeah. be interested in seeing that. Oh boy, man. that'd be a change up for oh, the next man. John Wick film. Oh man, that'd be that'd so be fucked up. What if they all they, they all just like cast them as characters in uh, a western? They're all the same type of relationships, but they just don't explain it. It's See, just some weird alt universe. That's why I'd be interested. You know, but here's in the thing. Yeah. Really quickly, I always hear uh, online of the wars or the war. I should say <laughs> of the wars. The wars. The all war, of those the, wars. The World War One. The, the World War Two. <laughs> the war. The between... war of the furries. <laughs> War of the Worlds. Uh, uh, the war between <laughs> uh, television and film, and which one is better, whatever, uh, and I'm no, not going dumb. to, whatever. But I do think it is slightly more hip to be uh, with cinema because of the, I'm just saying, I, that's the Can't general, wear a black beret and watch, and watch, and watch HBO. That's the, well, I'm just saying, that's the general temperature that I've seen, and, and I say that as someone who's more of a fan of television. But that is exactly what television can do that apparently film just never wants to try. Like, why can't we have a fourth John Wick film where we just have an alternate universe? Like, it's just, if no one would bat an eye, because that happens all the time when uh, shows have to fill out a 22-episode season. Archer does it. Right. And anyway, that's a really long rant. It is, but but I'm going to slightly tie this together and go off of the path here a little bit. Boom. Western John Wick television as a big fan of it, have you watched the Deadwood movie yet? Oh, uh, I started it. Okay. And I stopped it. I enjoyed what I saw. Okay. But I have to rewatch that show before I actually... I have to watch that show. It's it's a great show. And even though the Deadwood movie, from what I saw at least in the first 20 minutes, was actually helping its audience because there were clear uh, flashbacks to scenes from the show... To remind you, I it's just such a great show. Anyway, I need an excuse to whatever. So, I did not. Deadwood's never been like one of my like top five favorite shows of all time. So it's like I can wait for it until I'm ready for it. I was just so happy that it a came out and b it got very good reviews. I was gonna say so. it, it sounds and also too other than uh, the actors who are no longer living, pretty much everybody <laughs> returns for it. I was gonna say yes. I've heard that just about everybody, including some that were dead on the show. Uh, <laughs> whether it be flashback and whatnot. Uh, and I think what's also, because it wasn't one of my, like, just all-time favorite shows, what's kept me from just, like, rushing to do my rewatch and whatnot, is that, from what all accounts, it sounded like it was very good and most people loved it, but that it was in no way a... Uh, like, let's say, you know, something like Twin Peaks comes on the air, and that never got a finale and whatnot. And then it came, and for 18 episodes, it 
refused to actually give the fans what it wanted by giving the fans exactly what it wanted, which is just fucked up weird shit that is inexplainable and whatnot. And I know that that's the M.O. of a show like Twin Peaks, but this felt very much like a Veronica Mars movie where the characters got back together and let's watch them for two hours because they got unceremoniously canceled, which is cool if it's a good show, which Deadwood is. Um, but it didn't seem very pressing to finish the story because I heard it was more about, like, isn't it funny? Some of them have gray hairs. So. <laughs> anyway. I'm glad to hear your thoughts on that then. Uh, Toussaint, continue on if you have any other initial thoughts. Uh, I don't really have any other initial thoughts. I thought this was a well-made film. I would come back to it. Um, yeah, I actually – I wouldn't say that – the love story aspect, I don't think that was particularly strong, but I did enjoy sort of the banter and the relationship between those two characters, even if it was fairly, you know, rote and sort of like, oh, it's like she's she's playing the hard to get and he's like the, the, the stoic lawman who's just trying to be respectable, but he's also trying to like acknowledge his own attraction and like square with that in the relation to like – she is who she is. She has her history, and he has his role and his responsibility that yeah, he has to do. She's a teenager, and... and he's a grandfather. I mean, what's yeah, the... there's yeah. that. Yeah, yeah, there's that too. And it's, I, oh, man, that's... Rio Bravo, John Wayne. Yeah, um, but it's a yeah, it's it's a it's a good movie. I thought the I I enjoyed it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, really quickly, one of my all time favorite scenes of this movie is also one of my all-time favorite musical moments in any movie, which is the performance of My Rifle, My Pony, and Me by Dean Martin, with a little accompaniment uh, by Ricky. You know what's sad? Uh, obviously, this is clearly just having a studio soundtrack behind them, pretty much just mouthing it. Right. Um, it was way better than the opening scene in the Aladdin movie that just came out, which yeah. is 60 years after this I film was, was released. I was say, you'd think we'd have it down by now. Nope. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> but I also think that that goes to the point of just earnestness, which is that uh, that scene is pretty great because, for, uh, for me at least, for a variety of reasons, uh, taking the technical aspect out of it, which is that I think it's a good song, <laughs> uh, it's a good little country crooner, um, I love the placement of that scene, which is basically the calm before the storm of the final fight, uh, you know, that's going to, that they're going to have to endure. Uh, it is also just after Dude's lowest moment of his uh, final relapse, I believe. Uh, and he, for him to kind of not even look up, uh, but to just kind of belt out this song, uh, it it's, it's such a... It's such a gorgeous scene because for me as a character tapping into what I believe is uh, a hidden reserve of strength and power because obviously he doesn't sing in this movie up until that moment. And I think that's kind of interesting that he literally gets his song back uh, after he reclaims his worth uh, after being at the bottom of a, of a bottle. And for him to sing that and yet he doesn't sing it by himself. And so for Ricky Nelson to throw it back and... Uh, accompanying him with Walter Brennan on the 
uh, the harmonica, mm-hmm. uh, it becomes this movie in a nutshell, which is individuals can come overcome their greatest weaknesses with the fellow help of their brothers, and uh, as long as we want the best in you know each other and whatnot, and it does all that in the span of a song that lasts basically a minute and something seconds, mm-hmm. and uh, I just think it's a beautiful scene, and I just I love that song, I love the emotions that play. And um, I just think it's a wonderful kind of coda to the drama and the arc before the gunfight start, which I also enjoy. But uh, I just absolutely love that scene. I would agree. I think it's a well put together scene, uh, even though I don't have the same affinity for it as you do. Huh. Uh, I do think that it fits very well into this film, especially since. Dean Martin's here, so you would assume, I feel like, that he's going to have some sort of singing moment. So it's weaved well together into this film and actually uh, does a great job of character development, as you were uh, just mentioning. So, yeah, I I think that's a a really solid scene later in this film. And also, um, just the tone of that specific scene fits very well where it is in the span of this movie yeah and i think that scene in and of itself is pretty much indicative of what i like about this movie the most and why it speaks to me which is that i'm just very here for like i don't really dislike any genre i certainly have least favorite genres and western is actually one of them uh but i definitely when i find uh you know entries in whatever genre that i like i fucking go gaga over them and I love them and this is for me my probably my favorite classical western and that moment pretty much sums up what I love about this movie as a whole which is that in the middle of what most people would find to uh to be kind of a classical you know western story and archetype it still kind of would rather slow down and watch its characters interact in a room for just a couple minutes, uh, even though there are technically more pressing matters at hand, uh, just conflict-wise, because it knows that the conflict is always going to be second uh, to the characters when you're inhabiting a genre that is can only do so many different conflicts, you know. But you mm-hmm. can have an infinite a number of characters, and and Duke and uh, Duke, fuck. Dude, I say that because John Wayne multiple times technically like played. It's been Duke, it's been Dean, it's been Dude. I, it's <coughs> the character's name is Dude, Dude. I know, uh, but and John Wayne did play Duke in the movie, mm-hmm. or if not several. Uh, anyway, uh, specific True Grit is that the one he's? I no. believe no. I, I don't know, but it's been more than one. Like, yeah, that, I'm sure. That was like his name. He seems like a Duke. Yes, uh, but anyway, the character. It's more concerned with. Uh, the characters of Dude and uh, Chance and uh, Stumpy and uh, Colorado and Mm -hmm. what they are feeling in the moment between uh, the moments that usually breathe. And I think one other way this movie is kind of indicative of that kind of pace and uh, tone is that the, the way this movie, despite being set in a classical Western setting and atmosphere and tone, uh, but the way this movie uses establishing shots is kind of, uh, I would say, out of the norm for typical Westerns. Usually, you had a lot of either 
fixed camera vistas, in which were present in this movie, but hold on, uh, fixed camera vistas mirrored with just very kind of overarching, like kind of eagle-eye view above the town, that kind of uh, caravan through a main street, whatever, and it was just that or the other, and the the establishing shots in this movie are so unique, in my opinion, because you never know when one is truly going to be just an establishing shot and and fade into the building or the frontier that it's going to uh, that it's highlighting, or if Howard Hawks behind the camera or whoever the DP was uh, is actually going to start there and actually move the audience's focus within the same shot by turning the camera. Which honestly, the the line of sight in that kind of uh, shot was just not done in classical westerns. Uh, you know, I mean, it, it it was a staple for a reason, which is that it stayed within certain conventions, whether that be both plot and a visual language. And, um, I mean, there's a shot in which when um, Dude and Chance do their first trip around the town, and there's a great moment when, after they're kind of talking a little bit and they just left the jail... Uh, they both go their separate ways to each side of the town. And the camera actually, at first you think it's going to be a straight-on dead shot of both of them going down uh, with them outlining the left and the right axis of the shot. And what's interesting is the shot actually tips towards Chan's and then pivots before it can actually fully veer into that completely onto uh uh, dude as the anchor for that to where it's a skew and even though Chance is technically the uh, authority figure in this town the heart of this movie is dude and always will be and even in like micro moments like that this movie is basically training the audience to know where to look um, for you know the story so to speak and that is a micro moment and there are a bunch of others that I also noticed that I'll probably forget now so I won't list them but this it just has a unique um playful attitude with the um with the you know the line of whatever you call it perspective uh and it breaks it far more often than a western uh usually did back then and this was before Sergio Leone came on the scene and blew all that shit up um but yeah it's just fantastic great <laughs> yeah so yeah, I uh, the the one thing I I think I'll mention um, for sure is I find the character um, of Feathers very interesting here because I feel like on the one hand she actually has a lot of traits of a somewhat strong female character even though she's definitely uh, probably not that in a Western film but at the same time I mean you have this woman who used to be with a guy and they were kind of definitely a casino thieving type tandem that went around until that sort of all fell apart and she had to like strike on her own and well more likely that this guy had other women before her and after her and then it just kind of evaporated away um but the idea of her moving her way through towns and arriving here um I, i think she plays a very interesting character because she is always struggling with this inner turmoil, but at the same time, she also is feeling like she's in control a lot of situations, which I don't think a lot of females in Westerns in the 40s and 50s really 
showed like this film does um even though she does kind of relent to the male characters throughout the film at different points I do think her character is very interesting for a 1950s Western. What's uh, interesting for me, and I completely agree, is that I believe Feathers is a good character, even if I don't love the romance between the two. Mm -hmm. And I say it as someone who likes the romance. But um, she, I don't think, is a bad character. Uh, Certainly, uh, any female character made in any movie, probably, is problematic at its base if, if it was especially if it was written by a man i mean there's just mm-hmm. no way around that and if you look back toward that era it's just even more heightened uh mm-hmm. you know whatnot and this is no exception however um the character itself is written with enough strength and i think angie dickinson puts enough of herself into it that you can read a lot into it that goes far beyond um the role of being a quote-unquote trapped female character with no agency because not only is she introduced as someone who's swindling all the men in that saloon I mean you know I think it's pointed that um, she's the only woman in that saloon and yet she's allowed to be because I'm guessing a lot of men was trying to take her money and that did not work out for them obviously Uh, and yet also, she's able to completely debunk uh, Chance's first impression of her as, uh, you know, that her worth is not tied to whatever impression he has of her, even though she's able to do some of the things that she's able to do. Like, you, uh, I feel like there's almost like this knee-jerk reaction because, you know, she's a woman and because he saw that wanted sign that, well, if those two things are true and she's winning money... She can't she do must that, be right? Like she can't do that on her own. So, not only which I she... think is great because at the very beginning of that confrontation scene, she just comes and flat out says, "In fact, I am the person from that, and I didn't steal the money." Um, which I all the while challenging awesome. his male sexuality. I mean, yeah, I, and I don't mean challenging like like oh wow she really gave it to him. But if you think about who John Wayne is playing compared to most of the other times when John Wayne is playing a character, um, he has a certain uh, value that he places on being upstanding, especially as being the local sheriff and whatnot. And uh, I just like that he goes into her immediately. So then her knee-jerk reaction is to then basically present him with something that he will not want to turn down but will have to and also kind of look like a fool for doing it because there's no real good reason to do so mm-hmm. and um i just think that's kind of a you know it's kind of one of those it's a trope but it's weaponizing sexuality and mm-hmm. it's being done in the western genre which i thought it, it was very well done uh Especially because then by the final scene, uh, that's kind of flipped on his head, where then she is playing the victim. But I but I put an emphasis on the word playing, because I don't think she is one, uh, and trying to goad him. And this time it's finally successful, because they've actually, you know, had a relationship up until that point. Mm-hmm. But I will also mention really quick the scene in which Colorado pours her drinks and she gets drunk and... Um, I kind of love that scene as well because I feel like on the surface, if you were to describe it, that would sound like a woman gets hysterical in the time of crisis thing. But actually what I like is that, A, it's alcohol that does it to her. And in a movie so focused on alcohol, that's just 
equality. I mean, dude is affected by alcohol for a completely different reason, and so is she. And yet it also uh, allows her to remain, I think, a strong character um, amongst all this crisis. But because her life was finally in danger for the first time in uh, the whole movie, you know, obviously any person, whether male or female, could crumble at that. And so to hit the bottle and then that she's less... At the at the time she gets drunk, then she uh, and is finally intoxicated. She's less concerned about that and more just that she is trying to parse through in her mind what is actually making her stay in this town, uh, which obviously we all know what. But mm-hmm. it's a good question to ask yourself when you are finally being shot at, and um, it also strengthens it because then that's something worth thinking for. Like, and she also has a great line too that I think goes kind of under the radar here because it's just kind of thrown away. But I do love that. She saves them by throwing the flower pot through the window, but she even is just like, well, I just led to their death, so what's that all about? Yeah. Which I, I, it was it, either them or them? I mean, yes, but at the same time, uh, that's a thought that most people wouldn't have in a fucking Western, I don't yeah. think. Another interesting part of her character, too, which I found very interesting is that at no point throughout the entirety of the film are any of the other male characters linked to her in a romantic way. True. Hmm. There was a moment when it may seem like it might do that, where Colorado Mm -hmm. takes her in, and yet it never crosses the line, which is interesting because uh, in 2019, they seem better suited of age and beauty, so to speak, and uh, skin color, of course. And um, Oh, wow. (laughs) Yeah. Going uh, there, huh? Yep. Yeah. It was such different times back then. Was it though? Nope. Uh, and so it's funny because I feel like I'm so trained when I see nowadays two young people together. I'm like, oh, they're the couple. Whereas, like, it's so weird to watch a movie like this where he's like, you know, just saying like, oh, come in and and comforting her, and it's completely platonic and whatnot. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's it's very bizarre. Things do change and. Not always for the better, and yet sometimes it's a lateral move, and sometimes it's for the worse, and it's very weird. So I think going to final ratings, and I'll start us off, and uh, I will give this a three out of five, and I feel like I could give it a higher rating on a second watch, because I think there are moments here that I would appreciate even more on a second viewing. But uh, this film just kind of falls into the very good category for me. And I think this is a a solid film and uh, definitely something that would have me more interested in watching other Westerns at some point, even if they are not like this particular film. Um, But I think that this film has a lot going for it. And also at the same time, I I didn't feel like this was boring me out of my brain in its two hour and 17 minute runtime or whatever it is. So uh, I'm a fan of Rio Bravo and I give it three out of five. I will also give this a three out of five. I think that, um, you know, for me, this is a pretty good starting point when it comes to like finding a guiding vector of how to like enter into, um, Westerns as a whole. And I know that there are a lot of Western aficionados out there who might be listening to this and balk at that, but Bear in mind, I'm also a neophyte, and I'm perfectly aware that this is sort of like latter era, sort of like traditional, um, like Western fare. It may not be like the 
most exceptional, like canonically, like like enshrined, like the other perfect thing I was example of that. Is but I think that the it's searchers, yeah. by the way, which is pretty much usually touted as the greatest example of the classical western. Okay, yeah. Um, but I wanted to do something that I thought was less riddled with some of the more problematic aspects of yeah. the genre, or that maybe didn't have as much of a um, um. A reputation that precedes it. Now, I'm not saying that this doesn't have a reputation that precedes it, but that isn't sort of like cloaked in this. It, there, 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 there's a like the situation when um, somebody hears the the the. And I know this might be a, be a reach, but like when somebody enters into a film class and they hear Citizen Kane is the greatest film of all time, and they just sit down and watch it, and they don't actually talk about the context of the production that actually went into that, the history, or 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 how the subject matter of that film bears on the actual like real life analog circumstances of how that was created. And when you just say something on its face that it's, it's the greatest without actually contextualizing that and actually substantiating that, then people just grow to resent that sort of qualification because you just expect other people to know what you know and take it at face. And I guess what I'm trying to say in roping this back is like, I don't get that sort of vibe off of watching Rio Bravo. I think that it's it's pretty much perfectly visible on its face as to what it is, what it's going after, and why it actually speaks to this sort of like archetypical model of like what makes a Western film a Western film. And so I really appreciate watching that versus like maybe like one of these like these these pillars. You know what I mean? Yeah. So yeah, I thought it was a good film. Yeah. I would I would watch it again, and I would watch more films of this ilk, if only to sort of delve more into this 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 corner of, of cinema right on i'm a huge fan of this movie if you couldn't already tell it is actually one of my all-time favorite films ah. um it's really the only classical western that i would find myself re-watching like on a basis in which i like go out of my way to rewatch. um and there are a lot of other not a lot, but there are definitely other classical westerns that I also enjoy, like John Ford's Stagecoach uh, or um, Johnny Guitar by Nicholas Ray, although it's hard to call that a classical western because even if it was made during the heyday, it is so radical in its uh, formation and in its, uh, in its cast of characters that it's, it would just be a bad example of the genre. Um, but this is just the epitome of what I would want. If my dad had to watch a John Wayne movie, I would hope he would throw one like this on. And he is a fan of this, and he is a fan of John Wayne. Mm. Um, because I just feel like the characters come first in this movie. And I just feel like, um, honestly, that there's that there, there is a certain language to movies that were made during the 30s, 40s, and 50s that is, you know, of a bygone era. So it's 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 kind of radical to say something like this, but I'm taking this within the context of a movie that was made during that era, which is that I personally think that this is a great example of a perfect script, which is not to say that... First of all, I say that as an opinion, not as a, like, let's teach this in classes or something like that. Hmm. But I watched this movie, and it does... Certainly, uh, you know, uh, I would say last longer than a lot of films of its ilk. Uh, usually, if you go over the two-hour mark, you're a frontier western because your characters have to get from point A to point B. Mm. <laughs> it's rare for a, you know, a local sheriff western to be this long, but I think it earns it. Uh, but I think the script here is perfect in the sense that 
it's not that every it's not that it in and of itself is like a um epitome of peak perfection achieved by a symbiosis of writer and idea so much as that i just think that every little individual part from one actor to a you know the guy behind the camera to the director just did their best in effort in putting into this movie which i think is fantastic and i just don't see a wasted scene in this in a film like this for for what i want out of it so to speak so i i just think it's a fantastic film and i personally give it four and a half out of five maybe one day i'll bump it up to a five because i really have nothing against it Mm -hmm. um but i just think it's fantastic and i said that and i'm done okay Wonderful. If you out there have any thoughts on Rio Bravo or actually on the Western genre as a whole, feel free to find us at filmtankshow at gmail.com. You can also find our episodes on filmtankshow.com or momentarily on iTunes. Yeah, we're there. Until it closes. Oh, yeah. well, we'll be on Apple Podcasts. I was going to say. We, <laughs> yeah, that's right. We, we won't have the same ring to it, but we will still be available uh, to be fair, not iTunes. <laughs> it's people are probably going to say iTunes. I mean, it yeah. does, I mean, because it technically we we are on Apple Podcasts right now. It's mm-hmm. just this will, yeah. Anyway, so anyways, Apple Podcasts slash iTunes <laughs> or also Stitcher, where you can rate and review our podcast, which would, as always, be wonderful. So, um, coming up on our next couple episodes, first a tease. So next episode, we'll give you some more details, but we have decided we are going to do a top six episode here again in a couple episodes, what? which other than our year end episodes, we have not done one in a while. Yeah. So I'm actually very much looking forward to doing that episode and yeah. also letting the audience into what uh, the context will be for I it. think it'll be a good conversation. That's very well put, sir. Um I will say, going off of that, yeah. it'll be good because it'll be great to go back to doing an exercise of finding out what our top six for the episode will be and also finding out what everybody's choices are. But at the same time, um, I feel like this is somewhat different than anything we've done in the past yeah. because it's definitely open to interpretation, but at the same time, well, I think really showcase everyone's individual views on uh, the topic that we'll be doing. So there you go. More on that on our next episode, but on our next episode, we are going to discuss a film that I've been wanting to talk to these two fine gentlemen for <laughs> for a long time, because there's a lot of emotions about specific aspects about this film um, that I'm not saying that people have like raging opinions on, but at the same time, they're looked upon as like, the fuck? I so, forget that this film exists sometimes. Okay. I will say... I uh, originally was kind of in agreement with a pretty general opinion of this film. Um, But the more times I've sat down and watched either parts of this or the whole thing, I think this film is actually pretty fantastic. And that is the second new Star Trek film, which is Into Darkness, which has Chris Pine and Zachary Quinto and also has Benedict Cumberbatch playing the villain in it that stirs up all kinds of opinions so uh we're gonna talk about that on our next episode and i'm very much looking forward to it and i don't know how much you guys are so but that's okay it'll be a fun episode to at least 
put all the opinions out there. I'm looking forward to it. Good. I mean, yeah. I have not seen that movie since the theater. Okay. And in that time, I have, and before I saw it, I had only seen the Star Trek movie that preceded it. But since that second movie, I have seen numerous seasons of Star Trek shows, have seen all the original Star Trek movies. So I'm going in a much different context okay. back to that film. And you were a big fan of the third Star Trek Absolutely. film. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. I, I think that is... Uh, Good or bad, that is the closest the first three move or first three the new trilogy has ever felt like an episode of Star Trek. Which is funny because even though I don't have the same context on the Star Trek series as you do, um, the the first Star Trek film with Chris Pine uh, actually is in my top fifty favorite films of all time. As I think it's an absolutely fantastic film, um, and I really like the second one as well. And we'll talk more about that coming up on our next episode. So, from myself, Alex Diekman, and Nick Cheney, hey. and Tucson Egan. Hey, Odie. <laughs> hey, Odie. All right. Hey, Odie, and your P.O. See you on that dusty trail, partner. Butter. <laughs> Thank you, guys, and we'll catch up with you next time here on Phil Tank. Mm-hmm.